Welcome to the Institute of World Politics podcast. IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. To learn more, please visit www.iwp.edu. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the Institute. Uh, my name is John Lanchowski. I'm the founder and president of the school. And uh, uh, for those of you who are new to the school, you should just be aware we are a school and not a think tank. We <laughs> offer five, five master's degree programs. We have a doctoral program. We also offer individual courses, uh, which you can either take for credit or audit and not have to commit to an entire semester or year's worth of tuition. Um, we have uh, 18 certificates of graduate study. Uh, and, uh, and so if you're interested in studying here or if you know anybody who is, uh, please come and see some of us on the staff afterwards. Um, it is just a great pleasure it never ceases to be a pleasure for me to introduce our distinguished speaker, uh, our beloved uh, longtime professor, uh, doctor, and ambassador, Alberto Piedra. Uh, Alberto has been a fixture of this school. He's been one of the pillars of this school for a very, very long time. Uh, ever since we started our master's degree program, uh, probably, and even before that, some uh, uh, 18 years ago, Alberto has taught one of our core curriculum courses here, uh, which is called the Western Moral Tradition in American Foreign Policy. And the reason we have a course like that here is that we at the Institute specialize in teaching all of the arts of statecraft, by which we mean the instruments of national power. And that means military power, intelligence, counterintelligence, diplomacy, peacemaking and conflict resolution, the many arts of public diplomacy, the many arts of nonviolent conflict, whether it's political, economic, <coughs> psychological, uh, or ideological warfare. Uh, we teach economic strategy. We teach foreign assistance. Uh, we try. We focus here on specializing in, in in teaching many of the non-military arts, which have been neglected both in the academy and in the government, in order to be able to enable our government to have the intellectual capacity and the capacity for integrated strategic thinking so that we can have much more of a whole-of-government approach that will use all the instruments of national power in order to minimize using armed force. And uh, we call this sometimes uh, winning without war. And so because we teach the different instruments of power, we want our students to use power prudently responsibly and ethically. Because of the many battle spaces that exist in this world, one of them is the moral battle space, and it is possible to lose a war in the moral battle space when you lose the moral high ground. And then there's, and so therefore we teach Western, broadly speaking, Greco-Roman, Judeo-Christian uh, moral philosophy and applied ethics, the, the that Western tradition that uh, has provided uh, Americans and people broadly who are the heirs of Western civilization uh, with the, the moral impulses that we have that guide our public lives and, and one hopes continue to guide our personal lives. Um, and in that respect, we also are very concerned here about the, the the kind of people who are running the most sensitive functions of government. Uh, the, those functions uh, that have to do with war and peace, with life and death, the errors in which uh, are, are the errors that are in, in those fields are the, the costliest that can be made by anybody in our public life. And therefore we need people of honor people of integrity, of courage, 
uh, of, of uh, determination to achieve the mission, but also with modesty and humility. We need people of reliability and loyalty, all sorts of, we, we, we want people uh, to, to, to be exercising power with the, the informed by the personal and civic virtues that they have tried to cultivate in their lives. And so we here, uh, we, we consider ourselves to be rare amongst academic institutions insofar as we care about the character development of our students and, and whether they will contribute or, uh, or, or, or harm ultimately the moral leadership quotient in our country and in other countries around the world. And so Alberto's contribution to both the uh, applied ethics when it comes to the use of power, as well as to helping our students be conscious of the existence of personal and civic virtues, that there are standards by which one conducts one's life, has been of inestimable value uh, to the mission of this school, and I think to the, 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 the lives uh, both professional and personal lives of our graduates. And so it's, it is, I've gone through this little disquisition because it is hard to underestimate the remarkable contribution this great gentleman scholar has made uh, to, uh, to, to our mission and, and, and our students' lives. For those of you who don't know about Alberto's background, he was born in Cuba. <coughs> He had been a, uh, a government official in Castro's government uh, when he was, he learned from a friend of his that he had something like only 24 hours where his security could be guaranteed. And with that little warning, he managed to spirit his family out of the country, found refuge here in the United States, uh, even though he had a full higher education and a law degree. and having been educated in Europe as well as Cuba. He came and got himself a PhD uh, here at Georgetown University uh, and has had a remarkable multifaceted career serving the nation and the world in so many different ways. Uh, he was uh, uh, director general of, uh, in his capacity in, in, in Cuba, he was Director General of Exports and Imports for the Cuban Ministry of Commerce. Uh, he was Technical Assistant of the Department of Economic Development of the Cuban National Council. Uh, he then came after his higher education, he became a professor at, at Catholic University of America and became Chairman of the Department of Economics and Business. He taught courses in business ethics and in the history of economic thought. Um, he served uh, as U.S. representative uh, to the um, Economic and Social Council of the OAS. Uh, he also served as President Reagan's ambassador uh, to uh, Guatemala during the Central American Wars from 1984 to 1987. He also served as the senior area advisor for Latin America during, uh, at the U.S. mission to the United Nations. He's written all sorts of things. Uh, most recently, uh, he produced a book, um, uh, Natural Law, The Foundation of an Orderly Economic System. And today, he's going to talk about his latest book, No God, No Civilization, The New Atheism and the Fantasy of Perpetual Progress. Alberto, we are honored to have you in our presence, and we thank you for the extraordinary contributions you have made to our country, the world, and to this school. Thank you, John. It's, uh, I've known John for many years. I think that the job he has performed in his last years has been absolutely extraordinary. I endorse 100% the words that he mentioned about the the role of the Institute today in American society, and not only in American society, but also the world over, because there are so many students who come from foreign countries and have such good memories of the Institute of World Politics. I have letters and 
all sorts of messages from students that studied here saying how thankful they are of having been able to get in touch with Institute of World Politics. So thank you again, John, for the great job that you're performing. And in particular, the assistance you have always given me. And in particular, thank you. <laughs> you have always been and assisted me at all times during my my brief life, if you want to use it, even though it's I'm all 93 years, but ne nevertheless I'm still going. I, I don't know whether it's strong or not, but uh, I managed to get it along. Now, I'm going to make a short introduction, and it's in case that uh, I'm getting tired, and because I want to leave uh, plenty of space for questions and answers, I will give a friend of mine here to finish uh, the introduction, and then I'll go into the second part of the, of the conference or whatever thing you want to call it, which is basically uh, whole question of questions and answers. Now, let me just start off then by just give that short introduction. I may not finish it because I want to dedicate more time to questions and answers. Now, no God, no civilization. No God, no civilization is not a history or philosophy of world politics. It is rather a book designed to get policymakers, academics, and modern thinkers about the idea that help explains genuine human development. For example, the meaning of life and living irrespective of faith, culture, language, or nationality. I want to emphasize this point because the Institute is very much interested in maintaining this way of thinking. And as you well know from those who have been here for a long time, we have received with open arms here all sorts of people, whether they come from Arabia, whether they come to the Middle East, whether they come from Israel, or whether they come but the so-called more civilized nations of the world, which of course is Europe, and uh, I'm tremendously and very grateful to John for having been able to uh, make this institute something which is the pride not only here in the United States, but I think all over the world. Now, the book also tries to expose the bankruptcy of ideas as they, as they are presented today. Tragically, most of today's dominant ideologies, tragically, most of today's dominant ideologies are based on godless assumptions. As you will know, I refer to those who embrace these godless teleologies, as we call them in this book, the wizards. The term wizards applies to a very, very general group of thinkers, though not to anyone in particular. holding a more or less common body of ideas that are anti-theistical to the Judeo-Christian tradition. These ideas tend to be held by militant adherents, militant atheists, radical agnostics, ideological relativists, and utopian dreamers, who tenaciously propose the claims of the Judeo-Christian and <clears throat> legacy. What makes the wizards, <clears throat> that I call the wizards, world view so attractive is 
that there were there there wizards know how to present these ideas in a way that uh, it's uh, they seem to be correct in their statements. Well, in in reality, what they're doing is something which is much much deeper and much more anti the basic values of Western civilization. In fact, I would go as far as saying that in many ways they are going to deconstruct all the thing that has been constructed for many years by philosophers, thinkers and so forth in the West. It is their whole tradition of Western civilization, Christian, or if you want to call it, Judeo-Christian tradition. Now, I think it is important to emphasize this because if there is a plan, as I see it, in order to destroy that, in order to deconstruct all these values which are so dear to our hearts and that have made this great Western civilization one of the greatest in the world. I'm not saying the greatest because I don't want to offend anybody. I think for example, the Arab countries, we talk about them and we tend to forget that the Arabs did contribute in a very, very important way to the culture of Western society. I mean, when you look at just two or three figures, Avicenna, Averroes, those great philosophers who in many ways brought Aristotle to Western Europe, at least by translations. And sometimes we tend to forget that. We look at the bad things, which a lot of bad things were done, there's no doubt. But we hardly ever look at the positive side. So that should be ground for a future understanding between the Arab countries and the Arab civilization and our Western civilization. They are not necessarily antagonistic. I know we have great differences, and we probably will have them in the future, but we can get along and understand the good part that you find among these countries that today are in, in, in dire, how would you say, conflict and problems, and have all sorts of problems. So therefore, we have to take into account all these things when we're analyzing. And this is what we learn at this institute. In the institute, we learn the most important thing, to get along with each other, not antagonize each other, accusing one against the other, but just the, the opposite. We present the real truth. Now, I, 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 we could go on and on, but I think I'd rather just finish this and maybe somebody else would like to say, or finish the introduction and to go to the questions and answers. I think that would be more interesting for you. The only thing I ask of you is that when you make a question or propose a question, uh, say it as simple as possible so that everybody can understand it and I myself am able to answer it the correct way. So I'm going to, I'm going to leave it now and maybe somebody would like to finish reading it or if not, we can distribute them later. Tony, why don't you pull that? Tony, pull, you can pull the chair. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let me just see what's working. Um. I would excuse myself for doing this, but I think you would understand when you're 93 years old, yeah, you get tired rather easily. So, so I'm, I'm just going to, you know, my good friend here, who's a great fellow. Right. I'm Anthony Salvio. I'm, I, I'm a friend of Dr. Pedro's and his family and of IWP for a long time. So, so therefore, sh can you finish it? Shall I begin? I'll begin. Okay. So I, I want to underscore for policymakers and diplomats the importance of virtuous leadership. Leadership, as my former boss Ronald Reagan once said, means the greatest leader is not necessarily the one who does the greatest things. He is the one that gets people to do the greatest things. Service and virtuous leadership go hand in hand. 
I hope that some of the ideas contained in this book will induce our anti-theists to rethink some of the assumptions underpinning their corrosive worldview, which leads away from genuine human development. History is clear on this matter. Just pick up a serious book about the horrors of the 20th, centuries, of the 20th century and the ideas from which they sprang. I am particularly interested in alerting people to the wizard's arguments which are cloaked in scientific language and sprinkled with Judeo-Christian terminology. Their morality is self-referencing and therefore by definition not based on the natural moral law. When analyzed in good faith, their arguments make no sense and their policies lead to exclusion, poverty, manipulation, disruption, conflict, discrimination, and the materialist's arbitrary use of power. The wizards discard the Judeo-Christian concept of the dignity of the human person because as materialists, morality is reduced to power and to that which advances the interests of progressive humanity as they define them. As a result, some of the wizards' ideas have inspired socio-political movements including communism, national socialism, liberation theologies, techno-scientism, radical back-to-nature sects, new world orders, and even unfettered predatory globalism and certain forms of multiculturalism. Gothist materialism and relativism stand at their core. To deny the link between atheism and these ideologies is delusional. A word of warning. Throughout history, all these movements have been mostly irrational and motivated by a quest for boundless emancipation. To disagree with some of them is to risk the guillotine imprisonment, extermination, the gulag, marginalization, the loss of religious freedom, or exile to an insane asylum. The Judeo-Christian worldview, on the other hand, rests on the conviction that there is one uncreated God who exists outside of this world and outside the human mind. God is not just one more man-made God, vengeful, fickle, and tyrannical, as the wizards always claim, but rather understanding, reliable, and magnanimous. God invites. It is the Judeo-Christian worldview, properly understood, which elevates the human intelligence, gives meaning to life, and can and should inform and better guide the decisions of policymakers. The wizards like to distort history. In the book, for example, I refer to the Middle Ages as the not-so-dark ages, for the simple reason that so many of the greatest insights about the universe and human nature were put forth at that time. What will it take to get man to realize that the path to genuine interior peace and liberation must not rest on Nietzsche's will to power or communism's efforts to create a new man? The anti-theists have it all wrong. Godless development models eventually reduce any policy, domestic or foreign, to a set of calculations akin to those necessary for managing a zoological park. In their godless worldview, education becomes a means for training circus animals and science a quest to, a a quest to do a better job of it. Law becomes an instrument to override the conscience and the police, a force to control outcomes, deal with the weak and dominate the uncooperative. And all those actions are supposedly for the good of the people at some time in the distant future. Informed and courageous political leadership must convey the idea that integral human development starts with a recognition of God, the natural moral law, and the eternal truths about the human person. Let's examine, I'm sorry, let's explain that the Judeo-Christian concepts of liberty, equality, and fraternity do not mean radical libertinism, egalitarianism, and multiculturalism. World crises are crises of men and women who have lost sight of God. We must open our minds and see the divine in the ordinary things around us and in other human beings and lead others to God. Anthony Flew, perhaps the most prominent atheist in the Anglo-Saxon world until his conversion in 2008, hits the nail on the head. We have all the evidence we need in our immediate experience and that, only a deliberate, and that only a deliberate refusal to look is responsible for atheism of any variety. So let us look. Let us keep our gaze fixed on God. Let us not lose sight of him, and let us help others to find him. We have to be men and women of heart. We have just celebrated the centennial of the birth of one of the greatest intellectuals of modern times, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. 
He brought down the Soviet regime by focusing like a laser on the godless, on the godless Marxist-Leninist ideology. Isolated and very much alone, he defied the regime. He countered the ideology not with a, not with a counter-ideology, but with the human heart. As he said, I was in the belly of the dragon, the flaming red belly of the dragon, and the dragon could not digest me. So let us be men and women of heart, focused on God and the Judeo-Christian moral and intellectual heritage. It is this heritage which provides the critical insights about the meaning of genuine human development. Together and with God's help, we as policymakers will renew human civilization. Thank you. Thank you very much. questions, and I'll try to answer it the best way possible. Now, I think all of us realize that we are living in an age of crisis. And this age of crisis is causing all laughter and a lot of confusion, and the creation of all sorts of errors. Now, what is the solution? The solution, especially in relation to crime and all the things that are going on around us, people think that we could solve that problem by the use of force or simple laws. I think that's an error. The problem in reality is not barking at the wrong tree, but looking at the real <coughs> source of these problems that we face today. And the real source that we face today is reduced to one term, moral actions. If there's no morality, we end up in chaos. Or you might say, yes, we could have a type of morality which is completely false. Hitler had his own morality, and so many people have their own morality. But that's not the one that is in accordance with the nature of man. In other words, what I'm talking about, that there is a natural law which was dictated by God when the creation of the world took place. When God created the universe, he made all these physical laws that exist today and that have been discovered for so many intelligent people and capable people and scientific people you're in the Enlightenment. And I think we have to recognize that. Look at Newton. Uh, it's an example of his discovery of the law of gravity. Well, it's the same thing. God, when he created the universe, he created all these laws in the universe. And we have to follow them, because if we don't follow them, what happens? Chaos. And I mean chaos, and I underline it a hundred times. Now, just the same as God created physical law to avoid the, the prevalence of chaos, what about the moral aspects of it? Can man survive without some moral rules and conduct? And who can determine that? Is it a Hitler? Is it a dictator? Is it a head of state? No, it's something which is within the nature of man, what is called the law of nature. We need to return to a solid belief in natural law. When God created the world, he created those physical laws that I mentioned before. But he also created a moral law to avoid chaos. If we don't accept the moral law, then we fall into what is the most, unfortunately, thing that is occurring today, which in my opinion is relativism. I mean, there are other evils in the world today. For relatives, yes, I think that is the greatest danger. Why? Because according to relatives, objective truth does not exist. So therefore, if you say, what is the color of that wall? White. And then you come along and say, uh-uh, that's red. Can both be right? 
one has to be right and the other has to be wrong. You know, this concept of right and wrong is slowly disappearing, if it has not disappeared already. We have to go back to find the truth. And the truth is only found in a return to the belief that it is a God who has dictated norms, moral norms, which are indispensable if we want to have order, if we want to have peace and tranquility in this agitated world of ours. That's why I said at the beginning, we are facing the wrong tree because we think by force we solve the problem. We will not solve the problem exclusively. I'm not gonna, please don't misunderstand me. I am firmly thunder of our force when necessary. But that's not the only solution. The solution is much deeper. It goes into the heart of man. If we want to change things, we have to change the heart. But I think the, the Greeks used to say metanoia. And yes. Feel free, by the way, feel free to interrupt whenever you want. Okay, could just ask a question. Um, um, basically, are you optimistic or, or pessimistic? I'm about always optimistic. Oh, <laughs> the truth, don't forget, the truth always triumphs in the end. Right. However, however, in the process of reaching that point, we may go through very difficult times. Which is exactly what's going on today. Why? Because we have abandoned those basic principles, which are the basis of order, peace, and tranquility. Now, I want, I want to clarify, just in case there's any doubt, I'm a great optimist, because I know we will triumph. We will win. But, in the process, we may go through even more difficult times. And I think this is what people have to realize. Yes. Um, I just wondered if you thought that um, what what part of is it just human nature? This this sense of you desire for utopian. We hear it all the time now. You know, in, income equality and utopianism. And is it just do you think it's just sort of a, a human nature thing that leads to you know? guys like Marx coming out, is, is there a way to um, counter, I mean, how to counteract that? It just seems like we're, we're human nature, we're doomed to have this sense of utopianism that's just around the corner if we just work at it. But you forget one thing. When God created man, he created him with several qualities, but the two main ones. Reason, and will. Man, with his will, can decide yes or no in terms of action. He's not predetermined, so that's why we don't believe in that predetermination. You and I have not been predetermined in one way or the other. We decide our future. Whatever happens, whether it's good or bad, we have to trace it to our own, to ourselves. We are the ones who decide the future. What has been one of the, the most horrible centuries in recent times? The two world wars. It's been a catastrophe. It has been, in my opinion, the destruction to a large degree of European culture. We're going back to an age where it's it's like the French say, I don't know how you say it in English, so super how would the French say Every man for himself. Yes. Well no, that's not the way. We have to have solidarity, but not the solidarity that is understood today. We have to love and understand other people, put ourselves in place of them. 
what would we do if we were them? Yes. You were ambassador in Guatemala at a very violent time, not only in Guatemala, but all around that area and in Central America. My experience with lawyers in Central America is that, by and large, they acknowledge uh, natural law in a way that typically lawyers wouldn't do in this country. What would, would you want to comment on the situation? Was it merely the external force internalized of Marxism in those countries, or was the population weak in its moral character? Well, I think there are several factors. I don't think you can say it's one particular factor. I mean, there's been a lot of injustice in Latin America, especially in Central America. That has contributed to unrest and, of course, all these extreme leftist movements. The tragedy of all this is the extreme leftist movements <coughs> are not going to solve the problem. They're going to make it worse. I mean, this business of some type of socialism that could become the first step to something much more serious. I lived in a socialist country where I lived. Yes, I did. It's horrible. <laughs> I really mean this. Don't forget that socialism basically is a sort of a collectivism in which the power is placed in the hands of few or one or, uh, or a few people. They are the ones who dictate. Now, in many ways today, do we have censure? No. Yes, I say. And I tell, tell you how it's done. It's an easy, how do you say this? Perpidious, you say in English, perpidious? Mm -hmm. Type of totalitarianism. Which is the best example? The best example is <coughs> What's going on today? What Cardinal Burke called negative tolerance. Now, what is negative tolerance? If you want to prohibit, if I want to prohibit something that you're doing, I don't tell you, don't do it. I don't have to. What I would say is, I would not do it because by doing this you're offending somebody else. You use that argument to get people or to force me. And it's so insidious. It's so I think of the words perfidious. People are fooled by it. Negative Tolerance today is one of the greatest things. What is called vulgarly political correctness. If you don't do what I want you to do, you're not politically correct. Why? Because you're offending your gentleman next door. That is being used as an excuse to control your way of thinking. Now that, that is even, yes,
yes, it's French sweet. I have a great love for France. But in many ways, the French Revolution was a disaster. And I don't think people recognize that. Now, the three slogans or principles of the French, the basic La liberté, l'égalité, fraternité. That's beautiful in theory. What has happened? Liberté becomes what? License. So if I want to dance and take off my clothes here and dance the flamenco in front of you, am I free to do so? No. You are physically free to do so. But you, you are not morally free to do so. Because there are certain laws. And the laws that I'm talking to is the laws of God. We tell you that there are certain things you cannot do. We go back to there is a truth here, and you can't deny that truth. That there, are, there is something which is right, and there is something which is wrong. So I don't know whether I answered the question. So you have liberté, une grande chose. Excuse me, a great thing. But if it turns to license, it's a disaster. That is what we're witnessing today also. Egalité. Egalité is not egalitarian. I mean, what's going on today? To be equal, for example, in schools, you accept anyone. In other words, ah, because <coughs> everybody has to be equal. But God has not created everybody equal. God has created some people more intelligent than others. So the, the type of education may be the same, but at the same time, you can't forbid somebody who is extremely intelligent. But I, I'm making an assumption that is of a different color from you, whether it's red, blue, or white, to replace you, simply because you have to have equality, which is not equality, it's egalitarianism. So, so that's the second one. Fraternity. Come on. Go back to the virtue of Torah. You say, love your neighbor. Yes. But can you love your neighbor by permitting him, especially I'm talking about fathers or mothers. Put an example. You're sitting at table with your family, your children, and one of your child, one child, speaks very badly in front of others, of other brothers, horribly of his mother. Oh, because mommy did this and that, and suppose oh, she's... No, the father, the father, in my opinion, I may be wrong, cannot tolerate that his own son insults his wife or the mother of the child. So there's a limit to tolerance. I mean, tolerance is being used for, as an excuse for all sorts of horrors. You cannot tolerate certain things. And that is perfectly legitimate. You cannot tolerate evil. I mean, I'm not saying that you should be them, by the way. <laughs> but you know what I mean. You have to say, no, this is wrong. We go back to the, what I said at the beginning. There is, or there are things that are right, there are things that are wrong. And you, you, the only way you can tell what's right or wrong in the last instance is by obeying something which is called natural law. Now, if you want it, somebody, what is natural law? Very simple. The Ten Commandments. The bottom line is the Ten Commandments. If you don't obey the Ten Commandments, so that leads to all sorts of abuse, so all sorts of problems. No, we have to go back to the idea that there is a God or a superior being, a Logos, whatever you want to call it. This is something which is accepted in Greek philosophy from way back with the Stoics. 
in which they clearly, and they were pagans, but they realized that there must have been, there has to be a creature of a creature, a being, excuse me, that in Quasopedia, and he is the basis of the order and everything that exists in this world. And in order, and he did it for our own good. It's like, for example, you know, can you imagine what it would be if this modern world of ours, traffic prevailed with no covering of no red, white, what is it? You have to have, excuse me? Yes. You need order and you need certain regulations. When God knew what we needed, God knew that we were, he was created good. I mean, man was created good. But we have tendencies towards evil. So he told us, yes, but you have to act in accordance with certain laws that I dictate. And another thing, yes. Yeah, I didn't mean to, didn't mean to cut you short. Um, so you specifically address the Judeo-Christian uh, belief system, um, yeah. but globally, Christians are only about a third of the people who practice religion, and, and I guess Judeo-Christian would be some number smaller than that. So is is that a problem that they're in a minority, and, and how, how do you address the other Natural religions? law applies to all. It's not limited to Christianity or to the Judeo-Christian. There's something within man that tells him this is right and this is wrong. I know you might, this might seem exaggerated, but no, it's true. So it's not limited to Christianity or Judeo-Christianity. That prevails in every, every human being. Yes. So, the root of the problem, this loss of humility, this rejection that life is difficult, that that um, self-indulgence is all I care about, as opposed to a, a, a more um, <coughs> humble approach to to life. Where, where does this start? Look, I think those of you who speak French, I would recommend a book by Aval. where he writes concerning that problem that he just mentioned. And that is basically that thing that tells you I said it in Greek. The metanoia is a search. I'm 93 years old, don't forget. Yes. I think we are going to wrap it up for you here. All right. If that's okay. Let's say one more question. Yes. We seem to be having a, a, a uh, in the Middle East, we're facing Christian persecution to one of the highest levels that we've ever seen. How do we deal with that as a society and it's creeping into uh, the U.S. as well? Do you want me to give you a very simple answer? Yes. Prayer. <laughs> in the last instance, we are not going to start to call them the force of arms. Now, I want to be clear. Don't leave me and say that I'm against the use of force. Because I'm not. 
because use of force is only at the last, as a last extreme, not used as a, as an excuse to impose our will. The truth cannot be imposed by force. People have been convinced. That's why I think it was an error among Christians in the past. You say, hi, such and such a priest said that we have to obey. No! I'm sorry, I'm not a heretic. You have to reason it out. Use your reason. God gave you reason. What, what do you have reason for? What do I have reason for? To think. To think and analyze the problem and then make the decision. I don't do this because Father so-and-so told me to do so. He may, yes, in many ways, be correct. But you have to reason out and say, yes, what he's saying is correct. <coughs> Not just follow that. No, you have to accept that you have to use your reason. Don't be lazy. <laughs> so I do it. No! Somebody told me, and it's wrong. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs>